All right, that's quite a crew. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter number 13. Revelation, chapter number 13. Usually, when you're preparing to preach, you want to plan to say something in, in the introduction to your sermon to whet the appetite, to capture the attention of your congregation, to hold them at least until you begin to delve into the text, but in hopes of holding their attention through the entirety of the sermon. The case of Revelation chapter 13, I can just say, this is the chapter about the Antichrist and 666, and like everybody's in, right? This is a chapter that does describe the mark of the beast. This is that biblical reference to that number 666. But there's a more pressing application of our passage than some far-off, distant, futuristic concern with Antichrist. The chapter as a whole is about resisting the temptations of Satan in every era, in every generation, past, present, and future. In the past, in the present, and the future, Satan has a single play that he runs again and again and again and again in an effort at deceiving the masses. And his most effective deceptions are those which most closely parallel the true work of God in his son, Jesus Christ. One of the key features of Revelation 13 is to demonstrate the extent to which Satan seeks to counterfeit the true work of God. In almost every verse, and certainly within every paragraph of this chapter, there is some description of the ways that Satan has worked to counterfeit the work and the message of the gospel. The beast here in our passage, in fact, there are two beasts, both have the same basic function, is the Antichrist, in the sense that he is the opposite of everything that Jesus has and is and will do for and among his people. So the usual response to Revelation 13 is to look for veiled signs and symbols of who this capital A Antichrist will be, as though there will be but one Antichrist to concern ourselves with in every generation. But as John has noted elsewhere, the chief concern for the church ought to be the many antichrists who have already gone out into the world. The message of our chapter here in Revelation 13 is a call to guard against the deceptions of Satan and to hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Join me in standing as we read together Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Time will necessitate a little faster move through the chapter, perhaps with a few questions yet unanswered. We'll seek to address those in the days to come. Revelation 13 and verse number 1. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. 
One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? A mouth was given to him to speak boast and blasphemies. He was also given authority to act for 42 months. He began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And he was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. He was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, he should listen. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, he will be killed. This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he sounded like a dragon. He exercises all authority of the first beast on his behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. He deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that he is permitted to perform on behalf of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the sword wound and yet lived. He was permitted to give a spirit to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. The one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a man. His number is 666. May the Lord grant wisdom, discernment, gospel insight, May he bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. We left off in chapter 12 with this simple sentence. He stood on the sand of the sea. The he there is a reference to the dragon, Satan, that serpent of old who was introduced in Revelation chapter 12. He pursues and persecutes the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the offspring of that great mother described in Revelation chapter 12. And yet he is proving incapable of bringing about her extermination. It is as though at the conclusion of Revelation chapter 12, he stands on the seashore calling forth assistance in his pursuit and persecution of the church. He calls for two beasts, a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. There may seem a great deal of mystery about what is described in Revelation chapter 13, but remember that John is addressing a very real church circumstance, specifically the seven churches of Asia Minor, for whom there would be no mystery whatsoever concerning John's intended meaning in Revelation chapter 13. The churches of Asia Minor were across the sea from the Italian peninsula. 
the Italian peninsula home to the city of Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, and home to Domitian, the emperor of that Roman Empire. Domitian was a bloodthirsty ruler over the Roman Empire who demanded the worship and absolute allegiance of his subjects. If trouble were to arise or if a visit needed to be made to Asia Minor, Domitian, or more likely his representatives, would have traveled by sea. In the years of a first century Christian living in the region of Asia Minor, to say the beast from the sea bears no mystery whatsoever. They know automatically, they know intuitively that John is writing in a thinly veiled way referencing Domitian, the emperor of the Roman Empire. He's described in this, this way in verses 1 through 3. John says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, those images, those symbols, do bear specific meaning. But the specific meaning is not germane to Revelation chapter 13. Here's what I mean. John is drawing here, as he often does, on the prophecy of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. And in Daniel's prophecy, he prophesies the rise and fall of every major world empire. Prophesies the fall of Babylon. It was in the Babylonian context that Daniel found himself prophesying. He prophesies the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. He prophesies the rise of the Greek Empire. He prophesies the rise of the Roman Empire, contemporary to the writing of the book of Revelation. And in Daniel's prophecy, those empires are featured symbolically as beasts, specifically a leopard, a bear, and a lion. What Daniel is, is symbolically imaging here in Revelation 13, 1 through 3, is that Domitian, that beast from the sea, is a composite of all of the evil empires that have ever existed in the history of the world. He is the composite makeup of all of the world's collective evil, that beast from the sea. Evil incarnate is Domitian, the ruler of the Roman Empire, who has joined in the satanic work of the dragon in pursuing and persecuting the bride of Christ, who is the church of our Jesus. Verse 3, the Bible says, One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. you get that? His head was Fatally wounded, at least by appearance, but that wound was eventually healed. Later in verse 12, he's described as having a fatal wound which was healed. Again in verse 14, one who had the sword wound and yet lived. Thirty years prior to the rule of Domitian, this bloodthirsty emperor who ruled during the time of John, who writes the Revelation, there was another bloodthirsty emperor on the throne of the Roman Empire. His name was Nero. Unless you have Christian interest, you may not know much about Domitian, but virtually anyone who knows much about world history knows something about Nero. Nero was an especially depraved human being. 
Nero is known for having attached Christians to poles around the city of Rome, doused their bodies in fuel, and lit them ablaze in order to light the way to entertainment for Roman citizens in the evenings. In fact, Nero had his mother killed because it was politically expedient for him to do so. He was such a dreadful human being, he eventually was given the moniker of the beast among Roman citizens. In his depravity, eventually, Nero committed suicide. In fact, he took a dagger or a sword to his own neck and committed suicide. But in the aftermath of Nero's suicide, conspiracy theories arose within the Roman Empire. Specifically, that Nero wasn't dead at all, but that he'd been swept away in haste to the far distant reaches of the Eastern Roman Empire, where one day he would return in fury and exact judgment against those who had usurped his authority as emperor of Rome. That gets feet over the course of time. In fact, I think that conspiracy theory is probably in the background of previous chapters that describe this great army that comes from the east, led by this beast that rises up from the abyss. Now, what John is doing here is to appeal to the legend that says that Nero will come again in something of a mythological resurrection. In fact, it had become somewhat common to refer to Domitian now 30 years later because of his bloodthirst and the similarities that existed between Domitian and Nero as Nero come again. What you'll begin to see in Revelation 13 is the way that Satan seeks to parody the work of God in his son, Jesus Christ. The dragon as a parody, Satan as a parody for God the Father, the beast as a parody for Christ the Son who was dead and rose again. There's such an effort to counterfeit the message of the gospel on the part of the dragon and the beast that there's even a resurrection myth that attaches itself to this great beast. Verse 4, the Bible says they worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast, who is able to wage war against him. Now at first, verses 5 through 10 seem pretty pessimistic. Read with me. A mouth was given to him to speak boast and blasphemies. He was also given authority to act for 42 months. He began to speak blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. He was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. He was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. A couple things I want you to observe. One... He has been empowered by God. Notice the passive tense in verses 5 and following. He was, it was given to him. A mouth was given to him. This is a reference to the war of words. He is enabled to speak his blasphemous propaganda that Caesar and not Jesus is Lord. The great danger is not to fall victim to the sword, but to succumb to the message of the empire, which is that Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. It's in this manner that he wages war against the church. 
And the church is to fight back. The weapon of our warfare is the preaching of the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. That what God has done for us in his son Jesus cannot be replicated by the beast or anyone else. He's given authority. He begins to speak. He was permitted. Again in verse 7, he was also given authority. This is called the divine passive in linguistics. The assumption is that God is empowering him. God is at minimum allowing or permitting him in his pursuit and persecution of the church. Now, admittedly, this isn't a terribly optimistic outlook. God has allowed, permitted, empowered, if I want to say it a little heavier, that this beast would pursue and persecute the church. Sounds like dreadful news, right? But it accords neatly with the message of the apostles in the book of Acts. Do you remember the way that the apostle Paul sought to encourage the churches planted on his first missionary journey? He said to them, through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when you account for the human psyche, it really begins to make some sense. Difficulty, suffering, tribulation, and hardship is made somewhat more bearable by the promise that something awaits us at the end. Something awaits us at the finish line. In the case of the church, it is the promise of resurrection and the restoration of all that might be robbed from us in our mortal lives. This restoration, this resurrection accomplished and settled eternally by the message of the gospel wherein Jesus dies for our sin and on the third day rises again. I learned, I've been looking for him today, if not yet seen him, but I learned that one of our people ran a 100-mile race yesterday on foot, like not in a car, <laughs> on foot. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Can you imagine the endurance, the perseverance necessary to run 100 miles? Again, I stress on foot. Don't you know that the thought of rest at miles 60 and 70 and 80 and 90 had to be a compelling factor? The idea of, of being still, resting, and consuming good food must, must have been a motivating factor at various points along the way. A good night's sleep must have been a motivating factor. The only way you're able to bear with the misery of a hundred mile race is to be moved by the promise of what awaits you in the end. And dear brothers, I would suggest to you that the only way to bear with the difficulty and the agony that can often come with life in the here and now is to be moved by the promise of what awaits us in the end. The promise of rest, the promise of a well done, thy good and faithful servant, the promise of the restoration of all things and the resurrection of our mortal bodies raised to walk in immortality. That moment in human history when this corruption is clothed in incorruptibility. Don't you long for that? Don't you look for that? Now set this within the framework of what we've been discussing now for weeks. That the book of Revelation is about the passion of the church. The gospels are about the passion of Christ. 
wherein Jesus suffers in that last week of his life, bears with all of the agony and the indignity of the cross, the ripping of his beard from his face, that crown of thorns pressed about his brow, those nails in his hands and in his feet, the agony and the excruciating pain of the cross, and eventually yielding forth his spirit, that by virtue of his death, men and women and boys and girls of every tongue and tribe and nation and people would be forgiven of their sins punctuated by his victory and resurrection that assures the application of that great crucifixion gift to all who had placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That's the passion of Christ. But the book of Revelation is about the passion of the church. Our willingness to embrace the same fate as our Savior that men and women and boys and girls of every tribe and tongue and people would come to faith in Jesus. How did Jesus bear with the agony? How did Jesus persevere? How did he endure the agonies of the cross? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Dear brothers, if nothing else, Revelation 13 specifically, these verses invite us to endure the agony of being pursued by the beast and the persecution that comes therewith for the joy that awaits us in the promise of resurrection and the restoration of all things. If you don't have a gospel resurrection perspective, these verses are far too much to bear with. This is not even the most severe of what John has to say. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, he should listen. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. Dear brothers, this is God's predetermined plan and purpose for the church that we go the way of the Savior. In the same way that the predetermined purpose and plan of God for his only begotten son was that he would bear with the suffering of the cross in order to achieve our salvation and be raised in resurrection, so too the predetermined purpose and plan of God for the church is that we would likewise suffer in the preaching of the gospel, that many people would be called to faith in Jesus, and that on the other side of that dreadful experience, we would experience resurrection and the restoration of all things. John makes it abundantly clear in my estimation that he speaks specifically to the church in verses 9 and 10. In Revelation 2 and 3, as John addresses each of the seven churches of Asia Minor, he is careful to note at the conclusion of each individual address, if anyone has an ear, he should listen. Notice what John says in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, he should listen. And he ends this brief address in verse 10 saying, this demands the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Here's the message. When the dark days come, and they will inevitably come, when your day of difficulty arises, you needn't trust what you see with eyes of sight. Trust the promise of God with eyes of faith. It has been fixed, it is predetermined in the plan and the purpose of God that we would join with Jesus in his sufferings. But make no mistake that exultation awaits us even in our humiliation, just as exultation awaited our Lord even in his humiliation. This is the path of victory 
This is that losing strategy that we referred to last week. God calls us to do what seems counter to what's most expedient or beneficial in the moment. Turn the other cheek. How about bust him in the eye? That's quick. It's like, get the job done. Or if you want to be the master of all, you must be servant of all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. It's not a terribly effective strategy to achieve leadership quick, fast, and in a hurry. Neither does it seem that a willingness to embrace the prospect of death in relative passivity is a good strategy for the advancement of the kingdom. But from the perspective of the world, and most assuredly from the perspective of the dragon, it seemed a losing strategy that God's only son would go to the cross and be buried in that borrowed grave. It is yet another example of God choosing to get himself so far behind in the fourth quarter and that he alone gets the glory for the miraculous comeback. This is what we've been invited to as the body of Christ. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he sounded like a dragon. This lamb-like description is another example of this beast trying to copy, to counterfeit, or to imitate what the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world has done. He has two horns like a lamb, but a mouth like a dragon. This is the war of words imagery, right? His greatest threat to us is not the sword he bears, but the message that he preaches. And the invitation of Revelation is that we hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and we do not succumb to the propaganda of the day. This is the application of our passage, whether it be in the first century, in the 15th century, or the 21st century, that we do not succumb to the propaganda of the day, but we hold fast to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no more mystery about this beast from the earth than there would have been the beast from the sea. Domitian is ruling from the city of Rome over all of the Roman Empire, but he has emissaries or representatives in every Roman province. They are to enforce the decrees and the dictates of the Roman emperor. That's the function of this beast from the earth. Verse 12 says he exercises all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. I, I, don't, I don't want to cheapen or minimize the likelihood of there being real spiritual power enjoyed by those who are influenced by Satan. Often there is. You see, sometimes things that can be startling to see. But most of what you observe is no more than sleight of hand. Verse 13 is not the verse that you want to appeal to to say the Bible says that satanic powers are real spiritual powers and forces. This is another example of their effort at counterfeiting the work of God. This beastly representative of the, the beast who represents the dragon who is Satan, that serpent of old, is doing no more here than seeking to counterfeit the work of the prophets of God in times past. What did the prophets do? What were the prophets credited with doing in order to validate the truthfulness of their message? They called down fire from heaven. So this beast seeks to perform the works of those prophets of God. 
Verse 14, the Bible says he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that he's permitted to perform on behalf of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the sword wound and yet lived. So this beast is instructing those who are subjects of his on behalf of the beast in Rome, the beast of the sea, that they are to make images, they are to make idols at which they will worship the beast from the sea. Verse 15, he was permitted to give a spirit to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is the everyday experience of every member of those churches of Asia Minor. There are local Roman officials who require us to participate in the worship of the emperor. There's some complexity here. There's some challenges that go with being a Christian in the first century Roman context. If you wanted to be employed, you needed to be a part of what was called a trade guild, similar to a union in the 21st century context, but without the Satan worship. It's a pretty big difference. If you were a part of a trade guild, you would be compelled to participate in the manufacturing of statues, of idols that would be worshipped as representatives of Domitian or the beast from the sea. Not only would you be compelled to worship or to be a participant in the manufacturing of those idols, you would also be compelled to worship the God assigned to your particular trade guild. In, in Ephesus, when Paul is there, they, they try to drown out the preaching of the gospel, saying, great is Diana, having reference to the goddess of that region, the goddess who was assigned to the silversmith trade. The problem that Paul and Silas created in the city of Ephesus is that they shut down the economy. So much of the market was driven by the buying and selling of silver which was so much a part of the construction of these images, intended to be a means of worshiping the emperor and the goddess Diana. Now as a believer, that Jesus is the only begotten son of God, that he alone is worthy of all worship and praise, how could any convictional Christian be a part of the manufacturing of idols, let alone worship the idol associated with that trade guild? Pledge your allegiance to Jesus would make you, for all intents and purposes, unemployable in the region of Asia Minor and the greater Roman Empire. This cuts off your capacity for providing for the needs of your family. There's no material gain, and therefore there's no material provision for your wife or for your children. You are, for all intents and purposes, destitute as a result of your faith in Jesus and the beast of the earth which is the representative of the beast from the sea, is there to police the comings and goings of the marketplace. Your involvement or lack of involvement in trade, in commerce, in any participation whatsoever in the market. Verse 16, the Bible says, He requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark beast's name or the number of his name. Remember throughout the chapter, what John has done is to show us the various ways that Satan seeks to counterfeit the work of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ in delivering us from sin. 
Down to the point that this beast has his own resurrection myth, a legend attached to his identity and his name. He has chosen for himself the designation as the Son of God, as the Lord of all the lords of the Roman Empire. He, he, he features himself as the one to whom all worship and glory and praise must be assigned within the Roman Empire. And he offers himself up as the source of real peace in the empire, the source of salvation, the one who has overcome evil as we observed in Revelation chapter 12. This example, this idea of taking a mark, the mark of the beast, is yet another effort on the part of Satan to counterfeit the true work of God in his son, Jesus. You may remember in the Old Testament, God instructed the people of Israel that they would keep the law on their right hand and on their forehead. It would be as frontlets before them. It was a way of saying that you should keep the law before you at all times. There's even a certain sect of Judaism that still takes a hyper-literal approach to that instruction from God in Deuteronomy 6. And they literally have little strips of paper with verses written on them, bound up and in boxes that are tied to their right wrist and tied around their forehead. If you ever go through JFK Airport in New York, you will see members of that sect of Judaism who still bear the, the evidence, the representation of an over-literal understanding of what God has instructed them to do. Here in Revelation, we're told that we, as the people of God, bear the seal or the sign of Jesus. That language is used again and again and again throughout the book of Revelation. Here, Satan seeks to counterfeit that, offering a means whereby the people of the world can identify most forcefully with Satan and not with the Son of God. So this is not some kind of tricky thing where it sort of slides in and you don't know. So I've said a few times over the course of our preaching through Revelation that specifically this is, this is the sarcastic remark that your pastor has made in weeks past. This is not the Apple iPhone. This is not a social security number. This is not even a COVID vaccine shot, right? So a few weeks ago, they had this big Satan worship service at the Grammys. Now, the list of things I care less about than the Grammys is really, really short. But like all of you, you see this in your social media news feed. It's a part of the 24-hour news cycle. It's practically unavoidable. And there's a video that's floating around, and it, it captures the close of that little Satan worship service at the Grammys. And if you listen carefully in the background, in-house, the announcement is made, brought to you by Pfizer. And I'm going, you guys are just not helping anything, right? <laughs> like, are you, are you trying to make the case for, for being children of Satan? Like, are you, are you, this is not helpful, right? If you look at your Apple iPhone, on the back side of your Apple iPhone is an apple with a bite that has been taken out, which is a knock at Adam and Eve eating a forbidden fruit in the garden, and yet again, the world is not helping your pastor make his case. And I'm unsurprised by these things, that, that there'd be a following after on the part of this world, a following after 
the rhythms and the patterns of Satan of old again and again and again in a myriad of ways mimicking this satanic counterfeit work of Satan year after year, cycle after cycle. He is the prince of darkness lording over so much of the world in which we now exist. We ought to be surprised by these things. You may wonder at this point, most of our focus has been on the first century understanding of this passage. What implication does Revelation 13 have for the present or for the future for that matter? What you have in Revelation 13 is a localized foreshadowing of a cycle that will repeat itself again and again and again and again. And I do believe that this foreshadowing we find in Revelation chapter 13 speaks to the idea of a chief antichrist figure who comes in the last days and deceives many, leading many astray. But again, the most pressing concern for John seems to be not the capital A antichrist who is to come, but the many antichrists who have gone out into the world and coexist with us even until this day. When I, when I hear people, and I get these kinds of questions from time to time, especially preaching through Revelation, ask things about how the news cycle connects up with the prophecies of Revelation. Usually I chuckle at those things. That is not the intent of Revelation. If you're trying to find out this morning or in any passage in Revelation how a war in Ukraine, Russia, and China all fits together with this Revelation puzzle, you have completely missed the point of Revelation and have likely misunderstood everything I have said until this point. That is not the function of the book of Revelation. That's not the goal. That's not the aim. But I think sometimes, if I had been a Christian in the 1930s or 40s, you could not have convinced me that Adolf Hitler was not the Antichrist. Six million Jews dead, war in the Pacific and Atlantic, in the Europe, in a European theater and in the Pacific. I would have been so thoroughly convinced. I think I would have just lived on the porch in a lawn chair looking toward the east, right? You think Hitler was the Antichrist? Absolutely he was. There have been many who've come before him. And there will likely be many who come after him. The most pressing concern for you and I as 21st century Christians is that we don't grow so fixated on the coming of some central capital A antichrist figure that we miss the somewhat lesser influences but no less satanic power of the many antichrists who have gone out into the world around us and exist alongside us even until that day. Message of our text is that we guard against deception and hold fast to the true Christ of our God. And I'm reminded again of how deadly, how dangerous are those counterfeits that run most closely to the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could look to various cults. There are many Jesuses parading around in our world today, masquerading as the Jesus of the New Testament. 
Many cults and religions which have co-opted the language of the Bible for nefarious purposes. They pose far greater danger to you and I, our children and our grandchildren, than a Satan worship service on the Grammys, as detestable as it might be. It's those that most closely parallel the work of God. And I'll tell you this. There is, in the Bible Belt of America's Southeast, a folk religion that is the greatest competition to the message of the gospel with its own system of theology, using the words of the Bible, the language of the Christian church, but it bears no saving power whatsoever. This is where the great danger lies for us. This is where souls are damned to hell forever, succumbing to the propaganda of the day. Whether it be overtly satanic or bearing the terminology of the New Testament. There is but one Christ who saves, and only Christ can save. His name is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You must come to the Christ of the Bible, not the Jesus of your imagination, if you're to enjoy salvation full and free. This passage is a Joshua 24, 1 Kings 18 moment in the book of Revelation. Have you taken the mark of Jesus or will you bear the mark of the beast? Which one will you choose? Will you identify with Jesus by virtue of your faith, what you think in your head and heart, by virtue of your actions, what you do with your hands, or will you choose to identify with Satan? Will you succumb to the propaganda of the day? Or will you have that your mind be renewed by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your life forever changed by that gospel reality? The question before us this morning is with whom will you identify? Choose you this day. If God is God, then let's worship him. Push all of our chips into the middle of the table. Give him our absolute allegiance. But if Baal is God, go on and worship him. You choose today whom you'll worship, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is an invitation in the Sermon on the Mount moment in Revelation, where Jesus says there's a broad path. It's easy, it's smooth, it's wide, and there are many who go thereby, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. On the other hand, there's a straight gate and a narrow way. And it doesn't afford room for baggage. You can't bring your junk. If you're going to get in the straight gate, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. And the travel is arduous. It's difficult. It's hard on the narrow way. But the end thereof are the ways of life. And there are few who enter thereby. Who have you identified with today? If you could for a moment get over the fixation on 666 and who the beast is and how this works. If you could put such nonsense out of your mind for a moment. Consider how it is and with whom you will identify. You identify with, with Christ by faith. That faith moves us to action. That's what's indicated in our passage. The same can be said of identification with the beast. No one's going to sneak in. Stick you with a shot, slide a credit card in your pocket, give you the wrong brand of phone. It doesn't happen that way. There must be a conscious decision to 
make our identification with Jesus Christ by faith and repentance. That opportunity is before every soul gathered here today. The Bible says if we believe in our hearts unto righteousness and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. In the language of Revelation 13, if you believe in your heart unto righteousness and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will receive the mark of Jesus. Is that good news? You encouraged by that? But I'm going to warn you, Satan is so deceptive, so tricky. One of the great dangers of this folk religion that exists where we have our existence is that there are so many who have identified with the beast while convincing themselves that their identity is in Jesus. Has there been a moment in time in your life when you made a decisive faith commitment to follow Jesus Christ? When you have beheld him in his glory and beauty, his immeasurable worth, when you would gladly flee the forbidden passions of this world and your flesh to know Christ and his fullness? Has there been that moment? Have you taken the mark of Jesus? You can by faith and repentance. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. God, I, I pray that, that through what can be for many the haze or the fog of Revelation study, you would speak with the crystal clarity of the voice of your Holy Spirit. That You would convict of sin and call to faith the lost among us. God, I pray that you would revive and renew the church, that even in our celebration of the Lord's table, that you would renew our commitment and remind us of the great sacrifice of the Savior and the saving power of the gospel and its sustaining force in our life at the present. God, help us to find rest and joy in what awaits us in restoration and resurrection by faith in your only begotten Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.